With North Korea being the first government I discussed on this podcast, it is fitting that the next to be discussed would be their northern ally and largest supporter, the People's Republic of China, which turned 70 years old on October 1st. China is perhaps worse than North Korea due to its size geographically and its size population-wise. It is in between Canada and the United States being approximately 100,000 square miles smaller than Canada and 100,000 square miles larger than the U.S. This makes it the third largest nation in the world. It is the largest nation in the world by population with about 1.45 billion people. In addition, it has the world's second largest GDP of 15.54 trillion U.S. dollars as of 2019, behind only America. All three of these figures come from World Population Review. This means the Chinese government has control over a vast quantity of resources, land, and population, of which, just like North Korea, they use to manipulate every facet of their citizens' lives, but far more in advanced methods of doing such. For historical context, the Qin Dynasty fell during the Xinhai Revolution by the Nationalist Party of China in 1911. This established the Republic of China. There were various issues with the government as it was ineffective at relieving the widespread poverty and Japanese aggression in northern China, most notably Manchuria and North Korea to the south of which Japan would control until the end of World War II in 1945. At this time, China's economy was very agricultural, with 85% being lower-class farmers, according to the writer of The Rise of Communism in China on allaboutphilosophy.org. Communism had a large appeal to lower-class and agricultural voters in China, which made the Chinese Communist Party increasingly popular, which was founded by Mao Zedong and various others in 1921. As it continued to gain power, it also became more militant. Like many extremist parties, it had a militia wing called the People's Liberation Army. The PLA fought against the nationalists, of whom they previously called allies. Mao Zedong himself, actually, was a member of the left faction of the Nationalist Party from 1925 to 1926. These conflicts evolved into a civil war which lasted from 1945 to 1949. To avoid overcomplicating things further, the Communists won and established the People's Republic with Mao as the chairman and leader of the CCP, and he would hold this position until his death in 1976, with the remaining dissidents fleeing to the Republic of China, or as it's commonly known, Taiwan, although the People's Republic of China disputes any and all claims of the former's national sovereignty. During this time, Mao launched his infamous Great Leap Forward program, which lasted from 1958 to 1962 and historian Frank DeCotter estimates killed 45 million people. Many died due to mass starvation, poverty, and harsh public beatings. And when I say cruel, I mean there are records of parents forced to bury their children alive, people getting thrown in rivers, maimed, dismembered, set on fire, and forced to work without clothes in the harsh Chinese winter for minor violations. In a History Today article he wrote, he cites the case of Wang Zayu, one of his ears was chopped off, his legs were tied with an iron wire, a 10 kilogram stone was dropped on his back, and then he was branded with a sizzling hot tool, punishment for digging a potato. From this gruesome depiction, it is no wonder that the Great Leap Forward is widely considered to be the largest mass murder in recorded time, and perhaps ever. Keep in mind, this is the very man that the current leader, Xi Jinping, idolizes. But that was then and this is now, so how is China doing today? Well... Countries controlled by the Communist Party and a one-party state where the only parties permitted to run are those approved by the CPC, and any party they don't approve of is banned. This means that even the other parties are almost identical to each other. The ideology of the party is officially Chinese communism and Xi Jinping thought. In other words, whatever the glorious chairman says goes. And if you question it, you might as well be an enemy of the state. And you don't want to be that now, do you?
No, seriously, you don't. As reported by business insiders Alexandra Ma, there are many things that happen, or rather don't happen, to enemies of the government, such as house arrest, prohibit one from leaving the country despite not having any past or criminal convictions, as in the case of Louis Zia. By the way, her husband was a vocal critic of China, and he died in custody in July of 2017. Actress Anastasia Lin received death threats against her family from the Chinese government in response to her objections to the state, despite the fact that she's Canadian. And some, like lawyer Wang Kuazihang, who just mysteriously disappear, I wonder what happened to them. There's also the basic censorship and vague laws characterized by these sorts of totalitarian governments. This all sounds very similar to North Korea, but where they differ is that unlike the DPRK, which prefers to limit the amount of technology that our citizens can obtain, most of which is reserved only for the elite, China utilizes technology to monitor its citizens, shame and ridicule objectors, and spread propaganda. They do this by monitoring an individual's activities, web history, social media, and just about anything else that may be of concern to the legitimacy of the PROC. The government even introduced an app called Save Xinghai, that encouraged neighbors to spy on each other and report unlawful behavior. This has culminated in the social credit score, which will be based on economic and behavioral activities, a score that will determine if an individual is deemed acceptable in the eyes of the Chinese government. While the specifics of the system are unknown, as it's set to take effect in 2020, it's safe to say that grading will be harsh and any form of dissent to the CPC will reflect this score. Those with bad credit will face many of the punishments already mentioned, such as being unable to leave the country, frequent places and businesses such as hotels and even colleges, and your employment may even be terminated. Furthermore, according to Vox's Nandra Nil, citizens who behave inconsiderately in public, like walking their dog off leash, can have their dog confiscated and be required to take an exam to get the pet back. On the other hand, elites and those loyal to the glorious state may receive various perks and benefits through the system. How nice. This reminds me of the telescreens from Orwell's classic dystopian novel 1984, but like a billion times worse as technology is more powerful and evolved than he could have ever imagined when he wrote the book back in 1949. Back when the atom bomb was a new invention, the average being about 20 or 30 times smaller than our modern variants, and the telephone was bolted to the wall. Now we carry phones, microphone, video cameras, and all with us at all times, perhaps naively believing that we're saying or doing something discreetly or privately without a second thought otherwise. Just imagine losing your job because you posted something that may be construed as criticism of a new policy or civil leader you didn't like. Well, that will soon be the case for those in mainland China. There are, however, places in China that do have rights and liberties, but even those places have to fight tooth and nail constantly to keep those freedoms intact. Of course, I'm talking about Hong Kong and Macau. Hong Kong was a British colonial state from 1842 to 1997 after the First Opium War led to the succession of the area to Great Britain in the Treaty of Nanking. It was later transferred back to China in accordance to an agreement made between the two nations in 1898 before the communist rule, leasing the area to Britain for 99 years. When it was given back to China in accordance with the 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration, Hong Kong was given freedom of speech, press, markets, and English common law. Similarly, Portugal held Macau until 1999 and has many of the same freedoms that democratic Western nations had at the time. Now, they are both special administrative regions, which basically means that, in theory, their governments and economies are autonomous from the mainland. This is all part of the one country, two systems principle that the parties agreed to in 1997 and 1999, respectively. The problem with this system is that it has an expiration date. In fewer than 28 years, Hong Kong will lose its autonomy and become just as free as Beijing, with Macau following a mere two years later. 
Xi Jinping has stated that he would consider extending the principle in the future, but personally, I'll believe it when I see it. Other issues are China has control over Hong Kong foreign policy, how basic law is interpreted, and can issue executive orders. Obviously, the differences in ideology and civil liberties have divided Hong Kong and Macau on how independent they should be from China. This has resulted in a legislative pro-democracy camp and a pro-Beijing camp in both countries, with one favoring Chinese involvement in the territories and the other favoring more or complete independence. In addition, Hong Kong has seen a new movement called localism, which is more aggressive and nationalistic, often favoring complete independence than the pro-democracy camp and is considered to be right to far right as compared to the usually center to center left parties typically seen in the pro-democracy camp. This group is led by the political parties Young Inspiration, Civic Passion, Shenton Community Network, Neo-Democrats, Hong Kong First, and Kowloon East Community. Although this is a relatively small faction with only a combined 16 district seats and four legislative seats, and even less after the oath-taking controversy where six pro-democracy and localist members, including both the elected members from the previously mentioned Young Inspiration, were unseated after they used derogatory slurs towards China and referred to Hong Kong as not China. All, of course, were replaced by pro-Beijing lawmakers. As for the pro-Beijing camp, it has a wide range of appeal and has both left and strangely right-wing factions. I personally find it quite odd as a foreigner that economic, liberalists, and capitalists would be willing to support a communist party. Either way, Beijing dominates the parliament in Macau with all governmental positions but four seats in the legislative assembly. Furthermore, they hold a majority in Hong Kong with 43 out of 70 seats in the legislative council and 327 out of 458 district seats. Alone, their largest party, the Democratic Alliance for the Betterment and Progress of Hong Kong, which I hope is shorter in Mandarin, holds 13 leg code and 118 district positions. As one can see, Hong Kong's politics can get quite frustrating and complex with 26 different parties currently in office, all of which have their own rival factions and camps fighting for control. Furthermore, a pro-democracy camp would be difficult to achieve as China has to approve candidates via a nominating committee, which is controlled by China. All of this shows the makeup of Hong Kong politics, at least on the surface, but whether the government claims to be loyal to Beijing or want revolutionary independence is meaningless. The only thing that matters is real-life policy and the public's reception of it. And if you've turned on the news at all these past months, you know it's not looking good for Beijing. The 2019 Hong Kong protest started on the 31st of March in response to the anti-extradition law amendment bill, which was proposed a bill that would allow Hong Kong to extradite people of which Hong Kong doesn't have a formal agreement with, most notoriously mainland China, which protesters fear may lead to China using the bill to crack down on dissidents even in Hong Kong. These protests have been massive with an estimates going up to 2 million people or about 27% of the population. Although the bill has been officially withdrawn as on September 4th, but in that time period, protesters' demands have been expanded to release and pardoning of all arrested individuals, of which there are over 2,300, an independent inquiry into police actions. Protesters claim that they are violating their civil liberties by taking extreme and often violent action against the protesters. Universal suffrage without the interference from China and the resignation of current chief executive Kuri Lam. There have been violent clashes between both pro-democracy protesters, pro-Beijing counter-protesters, and police, with all sides having been accused by the other of misconduct. Pro-democracy protests have been accused of vandalizing public properties, disrupting the movement of planes, travel throughout the airport, arson, attacking police with stones, weapons, and reportedly even a homemade bomb. 
Police have used rubber bullets, live ammunition, batons, sponge bullets, tear gas, and other anti-riot measures. On the other hand, pro-democracy leader Jimmy Sham was found with his head bashed in with a hammer. And although it's unknown who is behind the attack and an investigation has been opened, it's next to impossible that the attacks weren't politically motivated. It's even rumored that the triads are involved in some of the attacks against the protesters. Another question is, how is the mainland reacting to such a disturbance so close to its border? The answer is not well. Chinese officials have called the protest foreign influence, separatist riots, and even terrorism. Furthermore, China has done military drills close to the border as a show of intimidation and strength. The People's Republic has also used propaganda, cyber attacks, and blatant censorship to prevent the protest from spreading inside the mainland and turn the public against the protest. Xi Jinping himself has said that any attempts to separate from the mainland will end with crushed bodies and shattered bones. Yep, that doesn't sound tyrannical at all. Although domestic views of the protests have been extremely negative due to the aforementioned deceit by the Chinese government, in foreign countries, especially Western nations, the protests have been viewed as freedom fighters against tyranny. For example, in the United States, the protesters have received bipartisan support. Do you realize how hard it is to get AOC, Ted Cruz, Nancy Pelosi, and Trump to all agree on something? I honestly thought the day would never come, but here it is. Arkansas Senator Josh Hawley visited Hong Kong to assess the situation on behalf of the U.S. He claimed that Hong Kong is turning into a police state and that if Lam wants to prove him otherwise, then she should resign. Lam called these claims irresponsible and unfounded. As for the president himself, he has remained mostly quiet, although he has said that the U.S. is carefully monitoring the protest and China should uphold Hong Kong's civil liberties as they promised Britain at a U.N. meeting. This is in line with Trump's more nationalistic U.S.-first agenda and a less hawkish foreign policy. Although many in Hong Kong were disappointed in the lack of U.S. support, on September 11th, there was even an American-themed protest where many waved American flags, wore clothing decorated with old glory, and sang the Star Spangled Banner in attempts to increase the president's involvement. This has understandably put Trump in a difficult situation, preserve already tense relations with China, or get behind the popular protesters who have expressed pro-U.S. sentiments. This has led to Trump appearing as if he's fence-sitting. However, his administration is less vague about who they support. The Assistant Secretary of Defense of Indo-Pacific Security Affairs, Randall Shriver, stated that the U.S. support of the protesters is 100%, not a direct from the president, but it also shows the mildness behind Trump's accusations, or rather lack thereof, is motivated by diplomacy rather than opinion. But to the president, as Jeff Jacoby from the Boston Globe points out, it has been some of former president's biggest regrets in standing idly by as dictatorships reigned and committed acts of treason against their own people. For instance, he points out that former President Barack Obama failed to support democracy movements in Iran and refused to stop or intervene when al-Assad massacred his own people with chemical weapons and when the late George H.W. Bush refused to get involved after the Tiananmen Square incident, which happened or rather didn't happen depending on where you live, in 1989. Outside of the U.S., Canada and the U.K. have also expressed concern over the civil rights granted the citizens of Hong Kong. Reuters reports, we are concerned about the potential effects of these proposals on the large number of UK and Canadian citizens in Hong Kong, on business confidence, and on Hong Kong's international reputation, the British and Canadian foreign ministers said in a joint statement. Considering that Hong Kong was once a territory of Britain, many consider the opinions of Britain to be culturally influential, even if the nation no longer holds any governmental power. This is shown by the amount of English language and culture, not only in the street science and architecture, but also in the governmental and legal systems. Overall, this is horrible news for the mainland as they were likely hoping that Britain would keep their stiff upper lips shut and has further enticed protesters. 
As for Canada, tensions have been rising ever since late 2018 when Huawei CFO Meng Wazhou was arrested for fraud by U.S. and Canadian officials, and the protests have obviously done little to repair the situation. Just to draw things back to the horrible inside the mainland, you only have to look to the northwestern portion of the country where the majority of the country's Muslim population exists in a region known as Xinjiang. The Uyghur population has been targeted by the Xi administration for primarily religious means. See, China is legally an atheist country, which is less because of a support for science, but rather to assure that there is nothing higher than the glorious state, and anyone who oppose this form of state worship are a threat and need to be re-educated. In Chinese re-education camps, prisoners are forced to eat pork, which is outlawed by the Quran, beaten, tortured, experimented on, and even gang-raped while other inmates watch. All in all, many don't survive, and this is all done by officers under the Chinese administration's orders. This is all strikingly similar to North Korean prison camps. Just like their North Korean counterparts, overcrowding is an issue, the camps are dirty, and there is an overwhelming brutality conducted within the walls. The UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide has even referred to it as a genocide. Everything above shows the dangers and tyranny of the People's Republic of China, but unlike its ally to the South, it has a large influence on American industry as shown by recent events. Of course, I'm referring to the NBA and Activision Blizzard, two companies that care more about profit than the rights of individuals. To start with, the Houston Rockets received backlash in China after its general manager, Daryl Morey, made pro-Hong Kong statements on his personal Twitter. This led to the CBA, which is notably run by former Rockets player Yao Ming, cutting ties with the team and China wanting Morey to be fired. Basketball is very popular in China, and the NBA, as the world's top league, knows this, putting an estimated $300 million in promotion. So this has the potential to be a devastating loss for the league if they get banned in China. And according to Fox Business, makes $1.5 billion in marketing deal with China. As one may expect, Mori was condemned by the NBA, although he wasn't fired, but it wasn't good enough, and China has reportedly promised retribution against the NBA. Back home, the story has been a PR nightmare for the NBA, with many criticizing the NBA for being, well, spineless, greedy supporters of tyranny who are willing to throw an entire country to the wolves if it means saving their bottom line. Even the players are joining the NBA in support of China over the people of Hong Kong, with notable athletes like Charles Barkley, James Harden, the star player of the Rockets, and LeBron James, the three-time NBA champ who was voted MVP all three times. LeBron is particularly hypocritical because he's discussed politics calling Trump hateful, a divider, and a bum. I wonder if a Chinese citizen ever tried criticizing Xi like that in China, but I guess he only supports totalitarianism when it's economically beneficial to him. By the way, I'm not criticizing his opinions on Trump or the fact that he publicly spreads his beliefs, but to support China as someone who often expresses his dissidence of the current administration is hypocritical at best. The ability for China to control and narrate speech, even for those outside its borders, is extremely alarming and dangerous to the rights of those living in constitutional democracies. What happens in China affects us all, not just those that suffer under the constant threat of a tyrannical regime. Hong Kong is just one front in a war for basic human rights that serves as a reminder that no freedoms are guaranteed by any state or government and must be fought for. Furthermore, censorship in such a large and influential place like China is censorship to all, not just those that live within its borders. To this point, I don't think U.S. military involvement is desirable, and we should continue to look out for our best interests while sympathizing with the struggles of those who are oppressed. But if legal oppression turns into militaristic or police oppression, as has been suggested by Senator Howley, then coordinated diplomatic, economic, and if absolutely necessary, military action with NATO and UN forces should be enacted to free the people of Hong Kong and mainland China.